Whenever they say my name and people make weird noises, I think maybe my mom's here, but she's never here. I did look around. I don't know who that is that makes those noises, but I, I guess I appreciate it. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning, and those of you joining us online, so glad that uh, you've tuned in as well as we continue in this series, The Summer of Love. I hope you've uh, been enjoying these messages. More importantly, that you've been benefiting from them. I hope uh, you've allowed them to uh, show you a better way to love and uh, that you've learned more about God's love for you. I want to remind you, we know it's summertime. We know that, uh, that people travel. We know that there's going to be some Sundays when you're not going to be able to get to church or get online. And uh, you can always go back and listen to any of these messages through our podcast. You can access that through our website. Uh, so just keep in mind that, that those messages are there for you. But this morning, if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 12. That's where we're going to spend our time today is Mark chapter 12. And when I preached a few weeks ago, we actually looked just very briefly uh, at this passage, but um, we spent most of our time that day looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. We jumped over to Luke chapter 10, and we focused on what Jesus said is the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. I guess we're moving in reverse order because today we're going to look at the greatest commandment, and wouldn't you know, uh, it also has to do with love. And so uh, before we jump into the text today, I want to set the scene for you because context is really important. Uh, by the time we get to Mark chapter 12, um, these events happen during Passion Week. And if you're not familiar with Passion Week, that's essentially the week that led up to the crucifixion of Christ. It began on Palm Sunday and, uh, and led up to Good Friday when Christ was crucified. That's where we are in Mark chapter 12. Jesus is at the end of his ministry. He's at the end of his life in the flesh. He has traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover one last time with his disciples. And uh, they've entered the city. And in Mark chapter Chapter 11, we read that uh, Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders and they came to him and they were questioning his authority. These guys were always questioning Jesus's authority. They didn't like Jesus's message. They didn't like his methods. They saw him as a threat to everything they stood for, a threat to the nation of Israel. Uh, so Jesus responds to them. But he did it by telling a parable. And we're not going to read the parable this morning, but I, I do want you to see what it says in Mark 12, 12. It says, Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Now, the parable that Jesus told is known as the parable of the tenants. And as you might imagine, it does not paint the Pharisees in a favorable light. And because of that, they were furious. They wanted to arrest him, uh, to shut him up. But sensing that the crowd was on Jesus' side, they decided to just walk away and to wait for a more opportune time. Now, look at verse 13, and this really sets up our passage today. It says, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Okay, and so this is what's going to happen for the next 14 verses is these uh, Pharisees and Herodians trying to, to trap Jesus in his words. They ask him all kinds of questions, trying to get him to say something incriminating. Maybe he'll say something that will actually turn the crowds against him. Uh, and this is what's taking place as we come to our passage today. Starting in verse 28, here's what it says. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Now pause right there. I want you to remember that the teachers of the law were one of the groups who Jesus had spoken against 
with his parable of the tenants. Okay, that's, that's how this man is identified. He's a teacher of the law. It's important to note that while the NIV calls him that, other uh, versions of the Bible refer to this man as a scribe. And uh, he's of the same profession as the man we saw in Luke chapter 10 in the story of the Good Samaritan. That man was described as an expert in the law. And I want you to know this morning, those terms are all interchangeable. Same person, same kind, kind of profession anyway. Expert in the law, teacher of the law, a scribe, that's all the same thing. And William Barclay points out in his commentary that their whole purpose was to interpret the law and just to know it inside and out. That's this man, okay? He's, he's a teacher in the law, he's a scribe, and he's been listening to Jesus and his interaction with those people who are trying to catch him in his words. And going on in verse 28, it says, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Okay, so this man, this scribe, he actually likes what he's hearing from Jesus. He, he likes how Jesus is handling himself. He genuinely appreciates uh, how Jesus answers the questions that are being lobbied against him. And so he decides he's going to ask Jesus a question of his own, not in order to trap Jesus. That's what the Pharisees and the Herodians were doing. That's what the scribe in Luke chapter 10 was doing. But again, this guy thinks Jesus has just given really good answers and he wants to hear more. And so he asked Jesus of all the commandments, which is the most important? And that might seem like a, a funny question to you because aren't all of the commandments important? I mean, aren't, aren't all of the things we read about in God's word important? Why would he ask something like this? Well, this question was one that was frequently debated among the rabbis. Uh, let me pause for just a second. Do you need me to do something with my mic, Brandon? I hear it going in and out a little bit. You got it. I'm a real amateur when it comes to this stuff, you guys. So thanks, thanks for bearing with me. <laughs> there we go. Okay, he's asked this question, which is the most important? And it's, it is a question that, that was frequently discussed among the rabbis. We've talked before on Sundays about the fact that, that rabbis would take the commandments of the Old Testament and then they would add all kinds of rules and regulations to them, right? And, and so they would essentially expand all of those, uh, those laws, those rules and regulations. But there was also this, this other desire to always try to express the law succinctly and to put it in as few words as possible. That's basically where this question came from. The scribe is essentially asking Jesus, how would you sum up the entire law? And Jesus answers him in verse 29. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. And these passages are where I really want to dial in this morning. Because in his response to this scribe, Jesus really defines love for us. We already looked at what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, but this morning, I want to focus on what it means to love God. What was Jesus' understanding of that, and how should we go about it? 
Now, in answering this man's question, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, and it's a passage that's known as the Shema. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we spent some time studying it about a year and a half ago when we were looking at the book of of Deuteronomy. Some of you might remember that, but I want to revisit some of uh, that information this morning because of the over 600 different laws in the Old Testament. This is the one that Jesus says is the greatest. Now, Shema is actually a Hebrew word, and it means hear, but it also carries with it the idea of obedience. And so Shema is to listen and obey, and it's the very first word in the command. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, we read, Hear, O Israel, or Shema, O Israel, listen and obey. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And this command became really central to the Jewish faith. In fact, faithful Jews even today pray the Shema twice every day, once in the morning and once in the evening as a way to to remind themselves that in all things we are to love God. That's the ultimate command of the Shema, to love God. But it's important to note that there are actually several different Hebrew words that all get translated into our one English word, love. And in Deuteronomy 6, the Hebrew word that's that's, um, translated is the word ahava. Ahava means love. Now, in the West, when we think about love, we primarily tend to think about feelings, right? But ahava is more than a feeling. And, and so Boston was essentially right. They were really good theologians when they said that. Ahava goes beyond mere emotion, and it involves faithfulness and obedience. It involves action. And Lois Verberg talks about this in her book, Walking in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus. I want you to hear what she says. She writes this, when the Israelites were commanded to love God, We can read it as not so much about passionate feelings as much as an utter commitment to loyalty toward God, the one they obeyed. Okay, so ahava is is not just tied to feelings. It's not just tied to emotions. And it's not that feelings and emotions aren't important, but with ahava, they aren't primary. What drives ahava is devotion. And devotion is what the greatest commandment is all about. Now, as we read on in the Shema in verse 5, we're given three more words that expand ahava even more. And in the English, the words are usually translated as heart and soul and strength. Now, sometimes we get mind or we'll get understanding thrown in there as well, but it all originates from just three Hebrew words. Let me take just a minute to show you what those words are. The first is the word lavav, and lavav is the word usually translated as heart. And we will often talk uh, in English in a way that distinguishes between our heart and our mind, won't we? We might say something like, he was thinking with his heart, but not with his head. And what we mean when we say that is that he was, someone was feeling, but they weren't really thinking about what they're doing. But with lavav, it's important to know that, that it incorporates both of those ideas into one. It has as much to do with the mind as it does with the heart. Lavav is understanding. Lavav is thought. It's consideration. And so when we read the word heart in the Shema, and indeed throughout most of the Old Testament, 
We should think in terms of both intellect and emotion. It's telling us to love God with thoughtful consideration, to love him with understanding, to love him with all your lavav. Then we have the second Hebrew word, and uh, it's pronounced nefesh. Nefesh is the, the word that's often translated as soul, but in Hebrew, it carries the idea of life itself. It, loving God with all of your nefesh means that as long as there is breath in our lungs and, and, and life in our bones, that we will use it to follow God. It has to do with our, our aspirations and our desires as well. Uh, all of that just pointed toward loving and serving God. That's nefesh. But there's another aspect to nefesh, and it's a willingness to lay your life down. Not only being uh, willing to live your life for God, but also willing to surrender your life for God. And many Jewish people have spoken the Shema with their dying breath as a final commitment to God. We've shared the story before of Rabbi Akiva, who lived in the first century. He was a rabbi who was tortured to death by the Romans for teaching the Torah. Uh, but instead of, of crying out in pain and, and agony like you might expect, Akiva was actually heard reciting the Shema. And some of his disciples heard this and called out to him, Teacher, even now, like even in the midst of the greatest pain and suffering, you're going to recite the Shema? And the rabbi responded, All my life I have wondered if I would ever have the privilege to love God with all my nefesh. Now that the opportunity has come, shall I not grasp it with joy? Nefesh is loving God with your very life to the point of even laying your life down for him if necessary. One more word, and uh, it's the one that we often read in English as strength, but in Hebrew, it's the word miod, miod. And this is the most curious of uh, the three words because it literally means very. And outside of the Shema, miod is never used as a noun, but rather as an adverb, okay? So for instance, in Genesis chapter one, when we read the, the creation account, God just didn't just declare um, the creation good, the Hebrew word tov, he declared it tov miod, okay? Very good. But here in Deuteronomy six, it's actually used as a noun. So the passage would literally read, Love the Lord your God with all your very. And there are several ways that scholars have understood and explained this. One understanding is that miod is, uh, is used to describe a person's strength, like giving it everything you've got. Give it all of your very. Another thought is that it refers to consciousness or a determination of the mind. And this is likely why... Uh, when this passage is quoted in the New Testament, we're given four descriptives, right? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, it's likely translating miod as both mind and strength. And another thought is that it also includes all of our possessions, that miod encompasses everything that we own, all of our material things. Uh, but this is how we are to love God, According to the Shema, with all our lavav, our thoughts and our considerations, with all our nefesh, our desires and aspirations, even being willing to lay our lives down, and all our miod, our might, our determination, everything we are and everything that we have poured into loving God, ahava, heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
And this is what Jesus pointed to as the greatest of all of the commandments. And admittedly, that's a really high bar, isn't it? It's an incredibly high bar. And maybe this is a good time to pause and just do a little self-evaluation and to ask, like, how, how am I doing when it comes to loving God like this? Are all of my thoughts, all of my considerations about him, are all of my desires and aspirations pointed toward him? Am I using all of my strength to, to run after him, to love him, to serve him? I know this is an Old Testament command, but the truth is it really fits in with the part of the law that we would call the moral law. And that's still applicable to followers of Jesus today. And it should cause us to, to pause and to think about our lives, to think about how we're living, what we're running after, and to see the total devotion to God that's called for in the Shema. In fact, to that point, I want to shift back now to Mark chapter 12. I want you to see the rest of that interaction. And I want you to notice the scribe's response to Jesus' answer in verse 32. Jesus has told him the greatest command to love God, love people. Uh, he's pointed out Deuteronomy chapter 6. And the scribe says this in verse 32. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, I wonder if you've noticed that there are several similarities between this account in Mark chapter 12 and the one that we studied in Luke 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. Both accounts involved a scribe or an expert in the law both of those men asked Jesus a very similar question, and the answer to both of their questions was identical, love God and love people. But the man in our text today is so different than the one described in Luke 10. We're told that the scribe in Luke 10 came to test Jesus. That was his heart. That was his intent. And he didn't like Jesus's answer because he wanted to justify himself. But here we see almost the exact opposite. The scribe who's described here in Mark chapter 12 seems really happy with the answer Jesus gives. He wholeheartedly agrees with Jesus. He even goes on to add that these commands are, are more important than offerings and sacrifices. And don't miss how significant that is coming from a scribe. Again, this, this man's whole profession was knowing the law, interpreting the law, certainly keeping the law. And the scribe in Luke 10 thought that was enough that his offerings and sacrifices made him right with God. But this man understands that empty religion is not what Jesus is after. It's not what God is after. Offerings and sacrifices are good, but God is after our hearts. And this scribe in Mark 12 seems to really understand that, at least on an intellectual level. And Jesus, picking up on that fact, replies to him in verse 34. It says, When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So the text says that Jesus saw that he had answered wisely. What, what is it exactly that Jesus saw? I think a few things. I think first he saw that the man wasn't trying to play games. I think he saw that, that he had a genuine interest, a genuine appreciation for our Lord 
Second, I think Jesus saw that the man had pure intent. His heart wasn't to test Jesus. He wasn't coming trying to trap him in his words. He actually came to listen and to hear what Jesus would say. And finally, I think Jesus saw that the man wasn't trying to justify himself as the other scribe had, but this man, he answered wisely. Some other versions of the Bible say that the man answered discreetly. And that word simply means that that the man had a singular intent, no pretense. And because of that, Jesus tells him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And that's a really interesting phrase, isn't it? It's a really interesting uh, way that Jesus addressed this man. And, and we read that and maybe we think, wow, that's great, right? Not far from the kingdom of God. He, he basically got a thumbs up from Jesus. That's awesome. But here's the tragedy of this whole passage. This is where it ends. Like that's the end of the account right there. H- having earned some amount of commendation from Jesus, the man never goes any farther. And doesn't that seem odd to you? Jesus has just told him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And if I'm not far, like I want to know, well, how do I get all the way in? But the man never asks that question. He, he seems content to merely agree with Jesus and then walk away. And Martin Lloyd-Jones comments on this in his book, The Kingdom of God. I want you to hear what he writes. He says this, this man was so pleased that our Lord agreed with him and that he had got the answer he expected, that he was ready to go away. Everything was all right. There was no acknowledgement of failure, no sense of need. He did not realize his need of salvation. He was a pure theorist. He did not see that what he agreed with condemned him and put him in this precarious position where he should be desperate. He did not ask this vital question, what must I do to be saved? And because of this, Jesus responded, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And while we might be tempted to think, well, that's a pretty good position to be in, Lloyd-Jones also points this out, that in the final analysis, being not far from the kingdom of God is of no advantage at all. Hebrews 9.27 tells us plainly that it's appointed to men once to die and after this, the judgment. And on that day, the only thing that will matter is whether or not you are in the kingdom of God. Not far will count for nothing. And I imagine there are some listening today, whether here in the room or maybe joining us online, who are living not far from the kingdom of God. Maybe you come to church every Sunday. Maybe you tune in online every Sunday. Maybe you agree with the morality of Jesus. Maybe you agree with the ethic of Christianity. You like the the teachings. You like that, that Jesus agrees with your views on most things, but you've never let the gospel go farther than your head. You've never let it penetrate your heart. Maybe Christianity is something you enjoy studying and debating and thinking about, but have you let it affect you in the core of your being? The greatest commandment is that we should love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the moment we agree with that, then we should go on and ask, have I done this? Have I done that? And the answer to that question is no, you've not done that. And neither have I, and neither has anyone. And I guess the bigger question this morning is, have you let the gospel show you that you have not loved God as you should? Have you let it show you that, that you're a sinner in desperate need of a savior. 
You may be in full agreement with everything that Jesus said, but the moment we see that we have not applied it, that we have not practiced it, indeed that we have rebelled against it, we should be cut to the heart as the men were in the book of Acts and ask that vital question, what must I do to be saved? And the answer to that question is this, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the only way to be saved from the penalty of sin is through faith in Christ. The scribe in Mark chapter 12 was not far from the kingdom of God. In fact, he had no idea how close he really was. Standing right in front of him was the one who could forgive all of his sin, save him from the penalty of it, and give him eternal life. But he failed to understand one critical truth, that it's not those who agree with Jesus who are saved. It's those who believe in him and receive him. John tells us in the start of his gospel that it's to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, who he gave the right to be called the children of God. Have you done that? Have you believed and received? I want to encourage you this morning to not simply agree with Jesus and then move along. Let the greatest commandment show you your greatest need and then find that need fulfilled in Jesus Christ, his humble coming, his perfect obedient living, and his sacrificial death for your sin and mine. Don't be content living not far from the kingdom of God. God has made a way for you to come all the way in, to be forgiven of every sin, and to enjoy his presence for all of eternity. And if you want to know more about a relationship with Jesus Christ, we would love to talk with you more after the service. I'll be up front here. Some others from staff, I imagine, will be too. But today could be the day for you that you let it move from your head to your heart and you respond with a love for God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much uh, that you loved us with such an amazing love the rebels and sinners that we were, God, that, that you looked on us and yet you loved the world you had created so much that you sent your one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you for that truth. Thank you, God, that when you saw and knew that we had not loved you the way that we should, we had not loved you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, that, God, you didn't walk away. Instead, you acted, you saved, you redeemed us. I thank you for that this morning, Lord. And I pray that if there are those listening who maybe are living not far from the kingdom of God, been coming to church for a while, been tuning in online for a while, agree with a lot of what they hear, agree with the morality and ethic of Jesus. God, I pray this morning that your gospel would penetrate their heart, that they would see that agreeing with Jesus is not what is necessary to salvation. It's believing in him. It's receiving his free gift of eternal life. Would you convict us of that, God? Would you let that truth penetrate our hearts today? And I thank you, Father, for the free gift you've given through Christ. All our hope is in him, and it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen.